Genesis chapter 8 this morning, and, and in doing so, finish the second major section of the book of Zechariah. By way of review, Zechariah is the penultimate prophet, scripture writing prophet that God sent to Israel. After him is only Malachi. And he sent to a remnant people, beleaguered, discouraged, downtrodden. Millions of Jews went into exile, less than 50,000 returned. The temple destroyed, the walls broken down. And the people begin to rebuild, and they quickly, when they encounter some opposition, they give up. They quit. And so God sends first Haggai to call them to renew their labor, their work, their faithfulness, and then Zechariah. And Zechariah's first word to the people was a word of repentance. The Lord said, return to me, and I will return to you. And then, as, as the people respond in, in repentance and faith, God pours out blessings and promises and encouragement. The, the overarching theme of Zechariah is comforting words. The very name Zechariah means God remembers. And so the first section of the book, the first six chapters, deal with eight visions that God gives Zechariah in one night. Visions um, promising the, the punishment of Israel's enemies, promising their, their full restoration in the land, promising the Messiah coming, establishing, confirming both the high priest Joshua in his role and function, in case there was any question about his validity, and also confirming Zerubbabel as the political leader, the governor. They don't even have a king in this time as they're under the rule of another nation. And then we began the second section of the book, chapters 7 through 8. And if you turn to chapter 7, actually, what you've really got, if the first section was eight night visions, what you have in the second section is one question and four answers. We read in the first three verses about the question that the people of Bethel put to the Lord. In the fourth year of King Darius, so we're two years now after the first series of night visions, about halfway through the temple rebuilding process, two years until they'll be complete. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regemmelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So men of Bethel sent a delegation to the temple, to the priests, to the prophets. And what's been going on is this, ever since the destruction of the temple, ever since the walls of Jerusalem were breached, ever since the assassination of Zedekiah, the people have been mourning and fasting and afflicting themselves periodically in remembrance. Their national pride is destroyed. They're in a pagan foreign land. They're being mocked by their enemies. Sing this one of those Jerusalem songs, the Psalms record. And by way of remembering what they had lost and mourning what they had lost, they would fast. And they've been doing that for this entire time. And basically, what they want to know is, can they stop? Now, the interesting thing is, God never told them to fast in the first place. Not that, not that fasting is a bad thing in and of itself, but he never told them to do that. There's only one 
fast commanded in the, the calendar of Israel, and that is the day of, um, of atonement. That is Passover, where the people are to, to, to abstain and afflict themselves. But no, they invented these fasts. And, and as I said before, Christians, we can do the same. We, we came up with Christmas. That's not prescribed in Scripture. We came up with, with Resurrection Sunday, um, otherwise known as Easter. We came up with those, and we came up with others. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And so the people, though, clearly are, are doing these things for the wrong reasons. And God's four answers to them, the first two negative, the last two positive, expose both their wrong motives, their wrong thinking, and give them encouragement. And so the first answer, God questions them with these fasts you were doing. Was it really because you were sorry you'd offended me, you'd been unfaithful to me, or was it sorry because you lost your stuff? The implied answer, of course, is they're really sorry that they had lost their position, their prominence, their power, their money, their land. And then in the second answer, he reminds them of what he had told their fathers before they were exiled, the, the, the prophetic word to their fathers. We see that in verse um, 10. Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your hearts. Of course, their fathers stubbornly refused to listen. They stopped their ears. They stiffened their necks like a donkey refusing a yoke, and they made their hearts diamond hard. And then God recounts what he did to them. He says, learn the lesson of the past. I told your fathers, I wasn't worried about fasts. I was worried about justice and mercy in the community and in the land. The rich were oppressing the poor, and mercy and kindness was being forgotten. And then in chapter 8, we round the corner to God laying out promises. There's both the, the stick and the carrot. And the stick was, look, let's face it, guys, you haven't really been doing this for me in the first place. And I'll, I'll learn what happened to your parents, and, and they refused to listen to me. But now the carrot comes out, and God says to them, basically, I have so much I want to do for you. I have so much I'm going to do for you. But love, love mercy, love truth. Do, do the things I told your fathers to do. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. The word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of great age. And the streets shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And with those lavish promises, then come the immediate exhortation to these people to persevere, to continue to obey. Thus says the Lord, verse 9, let your hands be strong. Let your hands be strong. Down again in verse 13, fear not, 
let your hands be strong. But then at the end of that section, we get the the repetition of the very thing he told their fathers to do. Verse 16, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So he puts the carrot out. I'm going to come and dwell with you. I'm going to come and I am going to reestablish you. I'm going to transform Jerusalem. I'm going to give you peace and prosperity. You won't have danger in the streets. Children and the old will be there. But here's what you're to do right now. You're to do the thing I told your parents to do that they didn't do. You're to love truth and justice and mercy. And now the final answer that the Lord gives is, is again putting out that carrot, the promises. We're going to see kingdom reversals in verses 18 to 23. God has three things to say. In all of chapter 8, whenever God's going to make a promise or give a command or give an exhortation, it's prefaced by, thus says the Lord of hosts. So, thus verse, um, thus verse 18, and the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, thus says the Lord of hosts. Then you see in verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts. And then you see in verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts. So the division of the text is, is pretty straightforward. Whenever you see a thus says the Lord of hosts in chapter 8, we've got a new point, a new thing God is saying. And what he's highlighting here are the great and wonderful and tremendous reversals of fortune, reversals of situation that God will cause to come about to, to Israel and to Jerusalem. Let's take a look here. The first is that Judah will become or will be a place of feasting. A place of feasting. Now they came asking about fasts. They came asking about, about times and periods, months where they would abstain from food, abstain from drink, abstain from, from making merry, that they would afflict themselves. And here, finally, God comes around to answering their question. Notice that. It's only in the fourth answer that God directly addresses their question. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Now, we don't have a direct answer to the question. Should we continue fasting? Should we not? What what God basically says is this, and and the answer I get from that is this. The the fasts that they were doing, they were done for the right reason. They were fine. He hadn't commanded it. I kind of think of it the way Paul says in Romans 14, one person observes a day to the Lord. That's great. Another person regards all days the same. That's great. One person abstains from certain foods for the Lord. That's great. Another person eats all foods. That's great. You want to keep fasting and you do it for the right reasons, that's fine. But here's the big deal. The big deal, God says, is this. My concern and what I'm, what I'm worried about and what I want you to think about is not fasting, but the coming feasts, the reversal, the complete upheaval of the situation. Rather than being a small, beleaguered people who have a reason to mourn, a reason to be ashamed, a reason to feel bad, you're, you're going to be rejoicing. You're going to be celebrating. You're going to be feasting. And, and this doesn't come out of a vacuum. If you turn to Isaiah 61, 
These were promises God put on the table for their fathers. If you remember, Isaiah was the prophet who was warning Israel before the deportation. Isaiah was the prophet warning Israel. And then Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel are actually there for the deportation. But, but Isaiah, in chapter 61, promises these same types of things. We're going to read the whole chapter. 61. The Spirit, the Lord God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prisons to those who are bound. You see this pattern of reversal starting. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes." People in Zion are going to be mourning, and God's going to comfort them, and he's going to exchange their, their ashes. You'd sit in sackcloth and ashes as a way of mourning. He's going to get rid of that and give them instead a beautiful, beautiful headdress and garments. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord." And they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. And you shall eat the wealth of the nations. And in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as he earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. What Isaiah 61 is talking about is exactly what this section of Zechariah is talking about. We, we see the combined themes. I love justice. I hate oppression. I'm going to rebuild the city. But here, notice the, the, the reversals. The reversals seen particularly in verses um, 3. To grant to those who mourn, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, garments of praise instead of a faint spirit. Those reversals are what Zechariah is talking about here. If we turn back now to, to Zechariah chapter 8. Well, actually, move ahead to Matthew chapter 9. A lot of times we miss much of the significance 
in, in Jesus' ministry, especially in Matthew's gospel, which is the most Jewish of the gospels. It assumes the most understanding. Because what, what, I, what Zechariah is saying is this. The day is coming. It's not now, but the day is coming when all of your, when I will, notice God says he will do it. Well, I will change your situation so that instead of mourning and fasting, there will be feasting, rejoicing, and seasons of joy. And then God sends his son, Jesus, and Jesus, unlike John the Baptist who came fasting and who came in, sack, in camel's hair, the equivalent of sackcloth and ashes, Jesus comes eating and drinking. He was accused of being a, a wine-bibber and a glutton. And here in, in chapter 9 of Matthew, Jesus is questioned about his conduct and the conduct of his disciples. And I want you to notice the connection here again which in truth, justice, mercy, and these things. As Jesus passed on from there, Matthew 9, 9, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You notice that? The, 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 the trumping of, of morality and faithfulness over the ceremonial aspects, the, the greater significance of how you treat your neighbor and your brother versus your fasts and your feasts. And then, verse 14, when the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples do not fast? See, because they kept on in some degree fasting, mourning. Because remember, Israel is under the Roman thumb. They, they've never yet regained their full political freedom. They've certainly never risen again to the position of prominence and power that they had, say, in the days of David or Solomon. There's still a small little footnote in history, and so they still mourn. And John the Baptist and his disciples mourn and repent, and the Pharisees do, and Jesus and his disciples, they do not. Look at Jesus' answer. Jesus said to them in verse 15, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast, but no one puts a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put in old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And what Jesus is claiming here, and this is the part that's easy to miss, is hugely eschatological. There's an appropriate wineskin for the old wine of fasting and mourning, new wineskin. Something new has come. And, and so what Jesus is claiming, I believe, is, is those things that Isaiah and Zechariah talked about, those reversals, the transition into the time of feasting, the time of celebration, it is here. And that is why my disciples eat and drink and rejoice. So Jesus isn't just merely making a, a point about the, the, the Levitical law. He's, he's claiming to be the one who's bringing this to the table. That's, that's part of the veiled significance of Jesus' very first miracle. John tells us in John chapter 2 that the water that Jesus turned into wedding wine 
was for ceremonial and ritual cleansing. Yeah, that's, that's supposed to foreshadow. That's supposed to hint at something. And of course, all of this is headed to the great wedding supper and feast of the Lamb in Revelation. So there's a very real sense in which Jesus comes and says, the time of rejoicing, the time of feasting, the time of, of celebration is here. I've come to bring it. I've come to inaugurate it. And of course, Israel missed that. But, but that is our great joy even for us, that, that our sorrows, Jesus tells us, to rejoice because of the coming kingdom, because of the reversals that are coming. Are you, are you lowly treated here? You'll be exalted. Blessed are the poor of spirit. Blessed, you think of Jesus' beatitudes and the joy that they will have in the future. Those same reversals await for us. They wait for us. Which leads to really the only, back, back in Zechariah chapter 8, the only exhortation in this passage, which comes at the end of verse 19. Because of this tremendous reversal, because God says, look, I'm going to take care of it. You won't be fasting anymore. You'll be rejoicing. You'll be feasting. You'll be celebrating. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. And do you notice that thread that's gone through this the whole way? God, God has been concerned that as their, as their prosperity begins to return, as the temple is beginning to be rebuilt, old sins, old patterns of behavior are beginning to reemerge. Beginning to oppress the poor. They're beginning to pervert justice. And then notice that God's note in every one of these responses has been the same. He's pointing them back to what I required of you, what I required of your fathers. It hasn't changed. Do that. Everything else will take care of itself. Just be faithful. Just persevere. Just do the things I told you to do. Just, just do the things that I told you to do. I, I used the example before, but I'll use it again. It's as though you, you tell your child, I, I tell my son or my daughter, and I say, look, if you guys go clean your room, go clean your room, and when you're done cleaning your room, I'm going to take you out for ice cream. And they go into their room, and I come in to check 15, 20 minutes, half an hour later. They haven't cleaned their room. They're, they're playing around. It's actually messier than it was. And, and so you say, that's it. No ice cream. And you guys need to just stay in your room now. You guys don't get to play outside. Your I mean, punishment, you're staying in your room. Because that's, that's what God did, right? God told Israel to do certain things. They didn't do certain things. And the promised coming kingdom, it was delayed. And they were taken off the land. They were disciplined. So now imagine that, so the kids, they cry because there's no ice cream. They cry. And then... Abner sends a delegation of Sophie because he knows that she's she knows that she's cuter, and she comes out and she goes, "We've been crying a long time in there. Can we stop crying now?" <laughs> right. But the real question is not how long have you been crying. Well, well, God's I guess God's answer would be if 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 I could resist my daughter's cuteness would be, "Are you crying because you did wrong? Or are you crying because you don't get ice cream?" That's God's first response to them. God's second response to them. Um, you know what I told you to do earlier this morning. Have you done that yet? Have you actually cleaned your room? Oh, no, we've just been crying. <laughs> okay, okay. And then, 
And then God rounds the corner and says, now look, I, you need to clean the room, but let me tell you if, you, if you and your brother will be obedient, if you and your brother will fall in the line and, and do the things I tell you to do, we're going to have a lot of fun. Not only going out for ice cream, we're going to go out and we're going to play catch. We're going to go to, um, we're gonna, my kids love going to Costco because they love the samples. We'll go to Costco. <laughs> now, they don't like going on Monday mornings because there's no samples on Monday mornings, but man, a Friday afternoon, they get excited about going to Costco. We'll go to Costco. Um, and, and that's what's going on here. But notice the continued thread. You've you got to do what I told you to do. You, you still got the requirement hasn't moved. It's been there the whole time. L- look at it in every one of the answers. He says, um, verse, chapter 7, verse 1, in the first answer, Were not these the words the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited with her cities? What he's saying is, isn't this the same thing I said to your parents? And then in, in the second response, he actually repeats what he said by the former prophets in verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow and the fatherless or the sojourner or the poor and let none of you devise evil against another in his heart. That's what I told you guys to do. I want first your hearts. I want you doing things for the right reason. And then I want you obeying and, and, and doing what is right to each other. And then we can talk about worship, and then we can talk about, about fasting and feasting. And then in, in chapter 8, as he begins to lay out the promises of what he will do for them, the application in verse 16, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your heart against one another. Love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. You know, and, and we can, the same thing can happen to us, can't it? We can get caught up in, in worship and being on worship teams or serving in various ministries, and we can lose track of the plain, simple things right in front of our faces that God is calling us to do. And, l- and let me say that if you're not concerned about being a better husband or a better wife, a better son, a better daughter, if you're not concerned with the, the practical issues of obedience that God is calling you to, God isn't really interested in your worship ceremonially. He's not interested in how loud you sing. He's not interested in how high your hands are raised. He isn't. God warns husbands who aren't loving their wives. I'm not listening to your prayers in Peter. He says, husbands, love your wives. Live with them in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, showing honor to them as joint heirs of grace, so that your prayers are not hindered. And sometimes we can do that to salve our conscience. We know there's some area of our life we don't want to submit to God in. We know there's some area of our life we're holding back in. And so rather than dealing with that, we say, well, I'll make up for it because I'll give more this month or I'll, I'll go to church more frequently. That'll make it okay. Giving's great. Going to church is, is excellent. Obedience, God says to Saul through the prophet Samuel, is better than sacrifice. Remember that? When Saul disobeyed, he didn't kill all the Amalekites. He left them, and, and Samuel shows up, and he says, what's this bleeding I hear? And he says, oh, I, I, I saved these to sacrifice and worship God with. Does the Lord have as much delight in burnt sacrifices and offerings as he does in obedience? That's the message here. God wants our hearts, wants our obedience, then he wants our worship. Then he wants our worship. He wants us to love truth and peace. Notice the order of that. Because you can have a whole lot of peace if you're willing to sacrifice truth, can't you? Just agree everyone's right. 
I mean, we don't know what we know. We don't know what's true. You can have a lot of peace in this world if you sacrifice truth. Just love truth and peace. Apostle Paul would say, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, holding firm to the truth once for all delivered to the saints. And this, this, by the way, reflects that we are to reflect God's heart. Notice in the, the final verse of the previous word from the Lord in verse 17, there he describes that they are not to love false oaths. For these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the point is our heart and our passions and what we love is supposed to reflect God's passions and what he loves. God hates false oaths and lying. Therefore, we shouldn't love them. We should hate them too. And here, what should we love? We should love truth. We should love peace. God wants a people who are in his image, conformed to the image of his son. And what that means is our affections begin to model his affections. You see God have a passion for something in the Bible? We should be passionate about that too. You see God hate something in the Bible? We should hate that too. It's what gets so convicting when you think about watching television because you start asking yourself questions like, do I laugh at and get entertained by things God hates and died for? That's a tough question, isn't it? Will I, will I sit and approve and clap while people do things that I find entertaining, that amuse me, that anger and grieve the heart of God? They're to love what he loves or to hate what he hates. And here, guys, he's saying, I'm going to do these great things to you. I'm going to flip it around. Just, just keep being faithful. Just keep obeying. Secondly, Jerusalem will become the epicenter of worship. Jerusalem will be the epicenter of worship. So the first response deals with their present mourning. And, and guys, he says, one day that's going to flip around. You're going to be celebrating. Now we see that Jerusalem will be the epicenter of worship, of worldwide worship. Look at verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. This is, this is the bookends of this section. It began, if you remember, with men of foreign name, born in, in, in Babylon, coming to entreat the favor of the Lord. And God brings it back where it started to promising a day when instead of being a, a footnote in world history, Jerusalem will be the, the epicenter of worldwide worship. That means, so plug in from every city. That, that means if the Lord tarries and if they still exist, people from, from Paris and London and Moscow, and Afghanistan, and Des Moines, and whatever cities are around when the, when, when the kingdom is instituted, will be going up. And they'll be going up to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. We, we see that very thing if you turn to Zechariah 14, where we're, we're going to end. And a lot of these predictions will get greater fulfillment and greater unpacking as we move into the third and final section of the book. But look at, look at 14, 9 is the setup of the kingdom, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one in his name, one. Now jump ahead. Verse 16. 
the survivors of the Battle of Armageddon, and there will be survivors from every nation. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast, not the fast, the feast of booths. So, so we're going to see more of this. The point here is this. Jerusalem will again be the home of where God dwells. Jerusalem will again be the, the center. We, we saw this under David and Solomon's reign where the queen of Bathsheba came and people came and they saw and they came and they saw. That will happen again even greater, even more fully. This was been repeatedly promised from the beginning no, no more specifically than in two parallel passages that I will read to you in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4. This is the glory of the kingdom, the centrality of Israel, and specifically the city of Jerusalem in a worldwide kingdom. L- listen to these two passages. First, Isaiah 2, 2-5, and then Micah 4, 1-5. They're nearly identical in what they promise. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations And they shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's Isaiah 2. And Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, Peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge many peoples and shall decide for the strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So this is promised. It's been repeatedly promised. It's an expectation of this kingdom is the centrality and the promise of the centrality and prominence of Jerusalem. Of Jerusalem. This promise will be fulfilled in in Messiah's kingdom. It's it's predicted in, in Psalm 2 where we read... As for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. We know this is talking about Jesus, ultimately. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Messiah will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And then the kings of the earth are called upon to do homage, to rejoice, to worship, joy and trembling. 
This is the, the expectation of the Jews. This was, this was Peter's expectation in Acts chapter 1. If you remember when Jesus, after he had been resurrected from the dead, in Acts 1.3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering from by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days, speaking about, about what? The kingdom of God. So after 40 days spent with a resurrected Jesus who'd been teaching about the kingdom of God, what is the one question the apostle Peter has? So when they had come together, Acts 1.6, no, they all asked him. This was their uniform question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples were expecting this to happen. I suggest it's right for us to expect that this will indeed happen. Jerusalem will be the epicenter of worship. Jesus even speaks of these conditions. If, if you remember the centurion whose faith Jesus marvels at in Matthew 8, chapter 8, verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is again envisioning this day, this kingdom where men from many nations come and come to Jerusalem to worship the living God. Thirdly, third reversal, the Jews will become a kingdom of priests. Jews will become a kingdom of priests. And I word it that way because if you remember, the, the two offices, priest and prophet, are, are asymmetrical. The prophet stands, like Moses coming down from the mountain, having just met with God, the prophet stands between the people and God, for God, speaking to the people. Here's what God says. Zechariah's a prophet. God gives Zechariah a word, and Zechariah speaks to the people the word that God gives as prophet. The priest does the exact opposite. The priest stands between the people and God for the people, interceding for the people, on behalf of the people, making sacrifices for the people. And that's the picture we see here. Pick it up in verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, and saying, let us go with you. We have heard that God is with you. They'll, do you see the mediatorial role they will play? They will be bringing the nations in to worship God. And, then, and the people of the nations will say, Whoa, you're, you're a Jew, aren't you? Can, can I go with you? I've heard that God is with you. Can I, can I come in with you? Please, don't, don't go away. I'm going to grab a hold of the garment and they, they keep going. They will once again be honored among the nations. You see the, the great position of honor and prominence that they'll receive. They've been tread underfoot. They are the anvil that has worn out a dozen hammers. But their day will come of honor. Now, now, let me make one point to you. These are all promises for a believing Israel. In fact, jump over to, to Zechariah 12. These promises, I mean 10, Zechariah 10. These promises will not be, I mean 12, I was right the first time, 12. Chapter 12. I shouldn't doubt myself. Chapter 12, verse 10, there we go. These promises will not be fulfilled until Israel becomes a faithful people, a people receiving their Messiah. And we read about that, and we will study this later. Chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. It will not be until that day, until Israel nationally 
repents, brokenhearted, receives our Messiah, these promises will come. So these are not promises for present-day Israel. If anything, they should expect the covenant curses for unfaithfulness. But we can rejoice in the, the promise and the hope that God is not done with them, that he will bring them about to faith. They will become a kingdom of priests, thus finally fulfilling God's ultimate plan for them. That was the plan God had for Israel. If you remember, when God came to Abraham and made a covenant with him, this is the words of the covenant in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your, Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You see that? I'm going to bless you so that you become a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's original plan with Abraham is, Abraham, come aside, I'm going to make you a nation, and in you I'm going to bless you, and by virtue of that blessing, you will in turn become a blessing to all the families of the earth. That's the picture we see here. A little later in Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, speaking to Israel. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light to the nations. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. When they, when they entered into the covenant with God at Mount Sinai, listen to the words God has for them there. He says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. You're going to be a, a people who intercede for the rest of the world, a people who will help reconcile the rest of the world to God. That was their calling. That was their plan. They, they bungled it hugely. They will fulfill it. The Messiah's kingdom. In Isaiah 49, 6-7, thus says the Lord, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised and abhorred the servant of rulers. He says this, kings shall see and arise, princes shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. God will yet make them a light to the nations. He will yet restore their honor. And notice that, that that phrase, why the people are coming, they have heard God is with you. And this links back to the very beginning of the book, because what's the very first word? Return to me, and I will return to you. Again, all this blessing preconditioned on their repentance, preconditioned on their faithfulness. So to summarize this, what we see is God is calling them to continue to be faithful. He's calling them to continue to obey, to continue to love truth and mercy. And in essence, what he's saying is, if you guys will just stick to being faithful, to being obedient, I'll take care of your worship. And in my time, I'll, I'll flip your, your fasts into feasts. And as we stand back now and look at this whole section that we've brought to a close, this whole section of, of one question and four answers, I think we can helpfully summarize the four answers this way, and this is on your notes. The first answer, the Lord desires our heart before he desires our worship. They come with questions about fasting. Guys, did you ever really do it for me? Or were you just crying because you didn't get the ice cream? 
Second, the Lord requires our obedience to his word. And he points them to their fathers and how he sent them a word very similar to what he's given to them. And they didn't obey. Look what happened. Third, the Lord blesses persevering, obedient faithfulness. He is going to bless them, but he says, Make, strengthen your hands, strengthen your hands. Don't grow faint. Don't, don't fall back. Don't turn back. Don't turn away. Don't shrink back. Persevere. I'm going to do great things for you. And fourth, the Lord directs our worship as our hearts model his. If we can just get about getting our hearts to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to be faithful, he says, I'll, I'll direct your worship. I'll, I'll deal with these fasts, and I will turn them into feasts. And I already told you how Jesus came to, to bring this. There's another sense in which he brought this as well. He's the one who brings this time of feasting. What is, what is this rite that he gave us that we celebrate? Is it not a love feast? Celebratory meal, originally given with wine and with bread. You see, the, the sign that we repeat until he comes is a sign of feasting, a sign of celebration. Now, it's not here in fullness. We've, we've got a taste. We've got the, the first course, the appetizers. And we keep celebrating. We keep going through this sign, this sign of, of a feast, this sign of celebration. Very different from, from, this, from the signs of, of previous covenants. Because we believe that we have come to know the one who will bring these things to pass, the one who will, in fact, institute a kingdom, the one who will make all things new, who will redeem all things, who will take all of our sorrows and cause them into joy. And by this meal that we're about to take, that's part of what we signify. But just as in Zechariah's day, God's concern before he was concerned with their ritual was for their hearts, was their treatment of their neighbor. So in 1 Corinthians 11, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. The more things change, the more they stay the same. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. From the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is it the Lord's Supper that you eat? That sounds an awful lot like, were you ever fasting for me? When you come together, is it the Lord's Supper that you eat? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? I will not. See, the same issues of social injustice, the rich oppressing the poor, no mercy. Same, same exact issues. Here's a ritual that the Lord gave us. Here's a rite. Here's a, here's a symbolic act that we partake in. And yet Paul says, look, if, if, if we're gathering together and we have animosity with one another, if we're gathering together and we are at war with one another in our hearts, if we're gathering together and our hearts are not directed to the Lord, Paul will later say we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. And so what I'd like to do now is just read the rest of this section and then take a, take a minute, just a minute, for us to get our hearts right so that our worship in ritual will be meaningful and true. It's not that the ritual doesn't matter. It, it only matters if it's built upon a right heart with God and a right heart with our neighbors in the body of Christ. For I received from the Lord 
But I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body for which you... Um, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So just as in Zechariah's day, the Lord is interested in right hearts, obedience, peace in the body, the people, and then... Then, the ceremonial. So let's just take a moment and examine our hearts. This, this is a meal for those who know the Lord. If you, if you know the Lord by faith, we invite you to join this table. If you don't know the Lord, if you've not come to, to place your faith and trust in the risen Lord, then we'd rather invite you to do that. Um, or, or talk to one of the elders. Talk to me or somebody afterwards if you have questions about that. But for those who are his children, to those who know him, we, we'd We'd call you to join in this table. But, but first examine yourselves. We can absolutely go through this as a dead ritual, and Paul warns we will eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. So let's just take a minute to examine ourselves, and then I'll, I'll pray and I'll call the ushers up after that. So let's just take a moment to examine our hearts in preparation for this table. Lord God, our hearts at best are divided. Our motives at best mixed. Even our best deeds carry within them elements of pride and selfishness. And so, Lord, we just come to you in confession that we are not clean, we are not pure, we are not as we ought to be, not in our own standing. And so we take comfort in the promise that if we are confessing our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need that cleansing. We need that daily foot washing. We need you to work in our hearts, to carve out the hard stone beginning to form and to to soften them. Lord, we need you to give us a love for one another a love that is willing to to, to be hurt, a love that is willing to pursue peace, even at cost of self. Lord, we need you to grant us repentance. We need you to, to work in our hearts so that we can take this meal worthily, understanding what we are doing, not as hypocrites, 
not as the Pharisees, not as a dead ritual, but as a symbolic act that proclaims the bridegroom has come. The age of the feast of the Lamb, his wedding, has dawned and is fast approaching. And so, Lord, help us to eat and drink in a worthy manner that gives you honor, increases our joy and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. I call the ushers forward this time to remind you that as we pass the plate, to make sure you take two cups. Um, And while the plate is being passed, I would encourage you, having first examined ourselves, take this time while we pass the plate to consider what it is we're proclaiming, what it is we are doing, what it is we are proclaiming in this act. There's a number of things going on as we celebrate the Lord's table. Paul says that by virtue of drinking from one cup and eating one bread, we proclaim that we are one body. We proclaim that. We proclaim that our consciences are clean because we've been warned not to come in an unworthy way. So the assumption is those who come, come clean. Most importantly, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. Paul writes this, For what I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. We are now going to pass the plate and take bread.
took the bread, he gave thanks. Let's give thanks now. Lord, you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. You gave up his rights, his privileges, his glory. He became a slave. He learned obedience and he suffered. He suffered and suffered ultimately to the point of death. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for the bread of life that has come down from heaven. We thank you for your Son, whom we may receive by faith and feed off of by coming to believing. And, Lord, we pray that we would leave here thankful for this bread that you give, which this bread here is a sign of. In Jesus' name, amen. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, Claim the Lord's death until he comes. Please pass your cups to the center to the ushers. You are dismissed.